Well, good morning again. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the last parable that Jesus told on the road to Jerusalem before his triumphal entry. Uh, in fact, it's the last teaching uh, from Jesus of any kind before the triumphal entry. And Luke, the gospel writer, tells us that Jesus told this story precisely because he was near to Jerusalem. It is a parable for Palm Sunday. So I'm going to read from Luke 19 for us, and you can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Luke 19. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang uh, together and asked that you would give your word success. And so that's what we're praying now, like always, that you would give your word success, whatever that means um, for each of us this morning. You know who we are, and you know where we are in life, and you know what our dispositions are. You know those of us here who have faith, and those of us here who don't have faith. You know those of us here who feel really close to you and ready to hear from you. You know those of us who are here this morning who feel far from you because we've been running away, or because you feel really distant to us. So, Father, whoever we are, wherever we are, give your word success. Use this teaching, this mysterious, strange, beautiful teaching from Jesus to show us his grace more clearly and to change us by it. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. 
Well, about uh, five years ago, when our youngest daughter, Cora, was in first grade, uh, I walked past her doing some homework at our kitchen table. Now, this particular scene, one of our girls doing homework at the kitchen table, it's played out hundreds and hundreds of time, uh, times in our home. But this one stuck out to me because she, she was frantically scribbling away at this homework, and I was really impressed with her pace, the speed with which she was doing it. It was this page that was crammed full of addition uh, problems and subtraction problems. And I sat with her for a little bit at the table, and I watched as she made her way through this uh, whole page of math problems in what seemed like record time. It was a pretty astounding feat. So she finished that page, and I thought she was done, but then she turned the page over, and uh, I saw a bunch of blanks at the top of the page, and then a little code key at the bottom of the page. Uh, It was one of those things where each number from the solution to the math problem corresponded to a letter from the alphabet, uh, and you had to match them up and fill in the blanks to get to this secret message. And I, of course, suddenly realized why Cora had been working so frantically through the math problems. It was to get to the secret message. She was flipping back and forth and back and forth, getting one letter at a time until this secret message was finally spelled out. It seemed like a lot of work for me just to get to this thing, uh, which in this case was the answer to the riddle, where do dogs park their cars? After a lot of math... After a lot of flipping back and forth, after a lot of code cracking, Cora had her answer. Dogs park their cars in barking lots. And I just want to say, this is how the parable that we just read works. Not like a bad riddle. It works like that because we need to move back and forth and back and forth. We need to flip back to the events that have just happened before Jesus tells this story. We need to keep in mind the events of the week that Jesus is facing. And we need to keep doing that in order to unlock the mysteries of this parable. This is one of Jesus' longest and uh, most complex parables. And the code takes a little bit of work to crack. You might have noticed some of the mysteries as we read it together. Who is this nobleman who becomes king? who has to go to a far country to get that kingdom? Who are these citizens who hate him so much? And who are these servants who work for him? And do they have anything to do with each other? And why is there such a dark ending? We're not going to be able to answer those questions unless we move back and forth, slowly filling in the blanks until the message of the parable becomes more clear. And in the end... What we'll see is that it gives us a roadmap to the week that Jesus is headed into and beyond that to what the events of that week really mean for people like you and me. So here's how Luke sets the parable up. He says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. So the very first thing that Luke wants us to do is to flip back. We have to go backwards. We have to think about what's just happened. We have to think about what the, Jesus, the people who are hanging around Jesus have just heard. And what's happened uh, happens to be one of the most familiar stories in the New Testament. If you went to Sunday school as a kid, you've probably heard this story. It's the story of that diminutive tax cheat named Zacchaeus. Now, when I say he was a tax cheat, I don't mean that he cheated on his taxes. I mean that he cheated other people on their taxes. He was a bad guy. 
But Jesus had had a meal with him. And as that often did, it made folks grumble that Jesus was too indiscriminate with his dinner dates. But Zacchaeus ended that meal a changed man. A new man. And Jesus said, today, today, salvation has come to this house. And then Jesus crystallized his entire mission, his entire presence with one wildly important sentence. I think he said this to the people probably who were were grumbling at him. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So that's, that's what's happened. That's what the people who are around Jesus have just heard, that his intention is to seek and to save lost people. Bad people. And while those words are still ringing in the air, he begins to tell a story. But Luke, Luke is not finished with the setup. He gives us two more reasons why this was the perfect moment for this parable. Why this is the perfect Palm Sunday parable. First, he says, they were near to Jerusalem. Like I said, uh, Jesus is just about to enter uh, into Jerusalem in triumph. In Luke's gospel, Zacchaeus' house is the last stop before they get into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. And everyone knows that Jerusalem is the city of Jesus' destiny. All of the pilgrims have made their way to the city of Jerusalem or are making their way to celebrate the Passover. And the people think to themselves, if Jesus is ever going to pull anything off, It's definitely going to be this week. This is when he's going to do it. And Luke makes it clear just how much weight they put on this week when he gives us the second reason. This is the perfect moment for this parable. He says they suppose that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Forget the fact that believing that meant that they have seriously misunderstood Jesus' teaching for the last three years. That's true, but that's not the point. The point is that they thought this was the week and that it's all going to go down. Remember before Lent, we started reading Acts together and we talked about how the disciples' dreams had been too small about the kingdom. They're too small here. They thought this was it. This is the week. Jesus is going to roll into Jerusalem. Somehow he's going to lead the overthrow of Rome. He's going to sit on the throne and take his rightful place as king of his people. The kingdom of God will appear immediately. So with all of this misunderstanding, with all of this weight, with all of this anticipation in the air, Jesus starts a story. A nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. This is the first plot line of Jesus' parable. And what we need to know is that the people who were listening to it, particularly in that place, might have found it eerily familiar. Jesus doesn't make references like this very often, but it's almost certain that in this parable he is making an allusion to a guy named Archelaus. He was the son of Herod the Great, and Archelaus had done exactly what Jesus is describing in about 4 B.C. After his father Herod had died, he went to Rome to petition Caesar 
to grant the ratification of his hereditary claim to rule Judea. He was followed to Rome by a delegation of Judeans who hated him, who did not want him to rule over them. Well, he got that kingdom and he came back. He, he renovated a palatial complex for himself in Jericho, where Zacchaeus lives, where they're hearing this story. Maybe they were in the shadow of the palace as Jesus told the story. And the effect is chilling. Jesus is paralleling his own life to that little detail from the life of Archelaus. Jesus is saying, I'm the hated king. Yeah, yeah, he's headed to Jerusalem, and yes, he's going to be heralded when he gets in as the king, the mighty son of David. Yes, people are going to shout, Hosanna. They're going to say, save us. They're going to throw their cloaks over on the ground. They're going to wave palm branches at him. But Jesus is saying, listen, there is a powerful delegation there that will do anything to thwart my kingship. They do not want Jesus as king. They will do everything in their power to keep his rule from happening. And this is where we have to flip forward to the end of the week that Jesus is heading into, where it appears for all the world that the delegation who hates Jesus has gotten their way, not only in turning the whole city of Jerusalem against him, but also in getting the Romans to kill him. And it's worth stopping for a moment and asking ourselves where we are situated in the first plot line in Jesus' parable. And I think we can do it pretty easily with just asking a couple of questions. Are we happy for Jesus' rule in our lives? Am I happy? Are you happy to have Jesus' rule in your life? How do we sit with not being able to call all of the shots in our own lives? I mean... Jesus was definitely a threat to the powers of his day, and they saw it really clearly. And if we're being honest, we will also admit that he is a threat to our power, too. His rule, his presence, his way of being threatens my autonomy. It threatens my way of doing things. It threatens my way of being in the world. And I don't know about you, but every day I'm tempted to come up with more and more reasons, more and more ways to say that the best ruler of me is me. And when I follow through on that, the result is always the same, just like it's always the same for all of us. When I follow through on that and I fake like I'm the true king of the world, like I know better than he does, the effect is generally pain and frustration and sadness and isolation from the people that I love and the people who are near me. But knowing that's the effect doesn't lessen the daily temptation to be my own king. And so Jesus tells this parable in part to ask people like us, where does a habitual putting off of the king leave us? Will we hail him as king? Will we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and mean it? Church, this is always, always the question of Palm Sunday.
So now Jesus shifts to the second plot line in the parable. He puts the first one on the back burner to braise and stew for a while. He says before the nobleman leaves, he calls ten of his servants and he gives to each of them a mina. That's about a hundred days uh, pay uh, for a day laborer. So not a fortune, but not nothing. And when he hands them the mina, he gives them really, really specific instructions. Engage in business until I come. In other words, when I'm off in the far country, use what I am giving to you. Essentially, he's giving his money to his servants so that they can do what he would do. So that they can be who he would be while he is off in the far country. They have his resources so they can essentially be him while he is gone. So Jesus says that he returns and he's received the kingdom and he calls the servants to whom he had given the money to see what they had gained by engaging in business. Jesus doesn't give us the details for all of the ten that received the mina. He just tells us about three of them. The first one is clearly an overachiever. He says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And the king is delighted, and so the king gives him a reward that far, far outstrips his level of performance. He gives him responsibility for ten cities in the kingdom. Notice what the king says to him. You have been faithful in a very little, in just a little bit. He doesn't commend him for being a killer businessman. He doesn't commend him for crushing the competition and making heads roll. He commends him for being faithful over just a little bit. Well, the second guy does pretty well, too. His initial mina made five minas. And again, the reward ridiculously overshoots the bounds of the work that he had put in. He gets responsibility for five cities in the kingdom. This is a hugely important part of this parable. And you know it's important because Jesus has found a way to work it in twice in the story. This king is incredibly generous with his rewards for these first two guys. He is absurdly, ridiculously generous with his rewards for their faithfulness over just a little bit. And then the next guy comes and says, Lord, here's your mina. I kept it hidden in a handkerchief. He hasn't done anything with what he had been given. It's not that he made investments and lost them or he had a really good run and then, they, and then it got bad right before the king came back. It's just that he didn't do anything at all with what he had been given. If the king had given him money so that he could effectively be the king while he was gone, then what this third servant has done is effectively acted as if the king didn't even exist. And he tells the king his reasoning. He says, I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit, you reap what you did not sow. (laughs) No, there is nothing absolutely nothing in this story to suggest that that is even a little bit true about this king. 
As a matter of fact, everything that we know about this king up until this point in the story is that he is just the opposite, that he is ridiculously prodigal with his resources, that he is wildly generous with his resources, and that just the tiniest, tiniest bit of faithfulness reaps huge, huge rewards. He didn't say, make me rich while I'm away or else. He just said, engage in business until I come. Just use the stuff I've given you. But this third servant chose not to see all that. He had imagined the king was cheap and hard, and so he was cheap and hard. The unfaithful servant's problem was that he didn't know or he refused to see what the king was really like. And that's why the king uses his own words to condemn him. That's why he points out the ridiculous thing that he said. That's who you thought I was? That's what you knew about me? Well, it doesn't even make sense if that's what you knew about me. Why didn't you even put it in the bank? I could have got a couple percent interest. But you didn't do anything at all. And now Mr. Ten Cities over here is going to get your stuff. And that's the end of the second plot line in Jesus' parable. And it puts us in a good place to start putting pieces together. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable because everyone around him thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately in all of his fullness as he rode into Jerusalem. Well, Jesus introduced the first plot line, the one about the delegation of citizens who hated the king, in order to say... That is not exactly how things are going to go down. (laughs) It's more complicated than that. More beautiful than that. More scandalous than that. Starting with the fact that there are plenty who would rather not have Jesus as king, and at the end of the week it will look like they have gotten their way. See, Jesus tells this parable because he doesn't want his disciples, he doesn't want us, to be confused about the events of the week to come. And beyond that, he doesn't want us to be confused about the kind of life that he has called us to live. He's going to seek and he's going to save the lost. Which means first, the cross. And then after the cross, the resurrection, which creates an entirely new people. You and me the church. And so Jesus weaves in this second plot line for us to say that while we wait for the king to come back from the far country to establish his kingdom forever, our job is to be faithful with the things he has given us. That's how we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and we mean it. Or to put it another way, if we are followers of Jesus, then our job in this world is to use what he has given us to be him in this world while he is off in the far country. Our job is to faithfully engage in his business, to do what he would do, to be, never perfectly, but as best we can, to be who he would be. To 
seek and to save the lost as best we can, to, to show mercy and justice, to sow peace, to love God, to love our neighbors as best we can. That's how we engage in his business while he is away. That is our vocation, Jesus' mission in this world, to seek and to save. It is the shape of our common life together. And church, listen, the weight of this parable doesn't fall on trying really hard to be a 10-minus servant or to be a 5-minus servant. The weight of this parable falls simply on being faithful with what, what it is that we have been given with our time, with our homes, with our friendships, with our presence, with our capacities, our skills, our abilities. This part of the parable causes people like you and me to stop and ask ourselves a really simple question. Am I being faithful with what I have to be him while he is away? And let's not forget this little detail in the story because it's really, really important. The way that we view the king will in large part determine how we use what he has given us. If we think he is hard and cheap and stingy, we will be hard and cheap and stingy. But if we believe the truth, that he is gracious, <laughs> that he is prodigal, <laughs> that he is absurdly generous, wildly generous with the gifts that he gives, then we will be gracious and we will be prodigal with those gifts. And I want to suggest that as, as, as counterintuitive as it seems, the dark ending of this parable is actually a pointer to how gracious this king really is. Jesus ends by returning to that first plot line and finishing it. He says, the king says, listen, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That is definitely a note of severe judgment. But the scandal is how the story actually works out. The scandal is in how this judgment really goes down. Because <laughs> the stubborn fact of the week that Jesus is heading into remains. Because before this week is finished, it will not be the king who slaughters his enemies. It will be the king who willingly allows his enemies to slaughter him so that he can seek, so that he can save. <laughs> and Luke tells us when that happens, when the enemies come to slaughter the king, his prayer, Jesus' prayer is this, Father, forgive them. Church, that is generous grace. <laughs> That is prodigal grace. So let's use what we have been given to make that grace known all around us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to see this parable, to hear this parable, and to believe that it is absolutely true that we would believe and with open hands receive the gifts that you have given us and in turn use them for the good of this broken world. 
Father, help us to be faithful to this generous King who gives us everything, who seeks, who saves. Help us to be faithful to him in using the things that he has given to us. Do this for our good. Do this for the good of this city and this world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.